people through their music. Out of the Box with Joey Watson on FBI 94.5. Hello, FBI radio listener. Yes, Joey Watson here for those playing along for the first time. I host this show. It's called Out of the Box. And every Thursday from midday to one, I get to sit down with one person and hear their stories and their records. My guest today is Dor Akech Achek. He's has been recognized for some pretty significant contributions to Australian society, but his road to become an Australian was tough, to say the least. He was born in South Sudan, the world's newest country, in the midst of a 21-year war. He came to his village when he was very young and would begin his journey to Sydney, one that would take him to Ethiopia through countless near-death experiences and a harrowing nine years inside a Kenyan refugee camp. Out of it all, he became a scout, a playwright, and a community leader. Today, Dor is a settlement service uh, settlement manager at Settlement Services International. He helps newly arrived refugees to settle into Australia based on the lessons he learned from his own experience doing the same as a teenager. Today, Dor, thank you very much for coming to this show, Out of the Box. Thank you very much, Joey. It's a pleasure to be in your show today. <sighs> I thought we'd start with some historical context. What was behind the the twenty one year war uh, that that broke out in your in your home country of South Sudan? Yeah. So the war began um, back in nineteen fifty five. It goes back that way when Sudan was um, granted her independence by the um, British colony, and there is a split in between. Uh, the north part of um, of Sudan and the southern part of Sudan. The north is predominantly um, Muslim and the south is predominantly animist or um, Christian. So while um, the politicians at the time used those uh, differences to divide the country and manipulate their resource share, so much of their um, resources were congregated in the north where the south was impoverished. So people from the south did a lot of um, rebellion to kind of fight that that injustice. It wasn't until 1983 when again um, an uprising began. And throughout that period there has been time where there is war and then peace and war. And in 1983 there was an all-out war um, that broke out when a a rebel leader by the name of John Grang called the injustice out in in the country. So it was really to look at um, stopping the imposition of Islamic Islamic regime across the country um, to bring about an equity of uh, resource share across the country and also to provide an a equal representation in the parliament for all the um, Sudanese in the country. That didn't quite work out. It, it took 21 years at different wars. And obviously the government had the upper hand in terms of mil- military might. So they had a lot of um, firepower. And and so, you know, they used that against the, um, the, the, the civilians. What did that mean for the sort of um, childhood that that you had before the war had come to your village, um, living in a nation that was in conflict. Yep. So for most of us as um, children, we lived not knowing what was happening. It wasn't until it came to, to us that when we realized something big is really happening. 
we weren't aware to all of the politics that was happening. All you 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 hear one day is you're playing in the fields, you're doing this. In my case, um, I had just gone to a local um, water tap to go and fetch water with my brother, and what we heard was gun sounds. So we had to run back home with the hope that we'll find mum at home to come and, um, and and provide safety for us. So we ran as fast as we could. And running back home, there was mum with her two arms open, receiving us and say, let's go, let's duck. Um, so we, we went, we left. That's the moment that you know that that's home. You look back and you you, you see that you're not going to come back to, to that place if it continues to be dangerous. What what had your life been like up to that point? It was really nomadic lifestyle. So you leave in um, a village, you come home to a town, you go back to the village. In some cases, you go all the way to cattle camp. You 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 go into the forest to go and fetch fruits, wild fruits. You feed off it. Um, so it was no school really for for majority of the kids in my area. Some who know about school did went to school. It was very selective in, in that days. Um, school wasn't a, like a priority for many people, many kids. It was more of you go to um, 10 cattle or goats or any, any sort of farming that you, you could do. So it was more of a, a village lifestyle. What about your family? Is it a, is it a big family? It is a big family. Um, my dad was married to seven, seven wives. Um, and so we've got, you know, brothers and sisters, some of them whom I forgot. Um, if you extend that to my, um, you know, grandparents who had married 13 wives, you know, you, you, you see the extent of a family and how big it is. Is it close? Is it, does it remain a close unit when you've got s- it, such expansion? It does. The, the culture there is the many people you have, the, the stronger you get. And so it's cultivating that um, union in, in, in the number of people that you have and fostering that because there is no, not much of an issue feeding people with milk and, and meat when you've got a lot of cows. Um, in such an economy of today, it would be completely different having families, 13 wives and, and maybe 50 children that you would have to feed. It's completely different, but back home, it was reasonable, and it's it's the lifestyle that, that supported that kind of um, you know you know marriage situation. How much of that very extensive family made it out of the village the day that you had to flee? Most made it out. Some didn't, and along the way, um, many of them lost their lives. And so, you know, at different stage. You, you will know until when you grow up and you start to ask people, what about them? What about them? And you start to get their stories that they didn't make it out. And so a lot of, a lot of families didn't. And quite sadly, in, in, in one of the areas where when we were running, we came to, you know, we had gone to Ethiopia and come back. Um, we, we went to cross the river. And as soon as we were canoed out of the river, the very next day, the rebel groups, which were allies of the government, came and attacked people, the civilians that were crossing. And a lot of people jumped into the river, some drowned, many, many of them. And those who made it out were few. So 
a lot of people um, died. On the way, you've got wild animals attacking people. You've, you, you know, you, you come to a camp um, that is uh, just a vast area of land that you just um, squad into to, to seek safety or to rest after many days of walking. And then you, you, you know that that area is populated by wild animals. You've got helipins, you've got, you know, lions, and, and some people lo- lost their lives there. So it was really a matter of luck if you made it out of that. What can we play uh, first up the top in tribute to this early part of your journey? So what we will play is, number one is called Palkutiel. It's, it's a song by a Melbourne-based South Sudanese artist called Saniman. Um, he sings in Dinka language, which is my native language. And basically it is a song that he is pleading to the residents of South Sudan to stop the hate and really unite to build a new country that is given to them. So since 2013, there has been an internal war in South Sudan. And so this song is urging people to to stop the division, stop the hate, stop the war, and let's focus on building South Sudan. So, Palkutia. <laughs> Child and women and men, they are all made. And they want Sudan, all of our fathers, by Sudan Panda, by Junupe Panda, Mante Quarko no Kunemi Takakwa, Mungojaloi, oh, Mungojaloi, Hapanale Panda, Matuaid Mikabai, Jongulaye Panda, Yakuanin Mikabai. Equatoria, Ujuri Bantiman, Jumupe, Mayubaneke, Alkutong, by Sudan, Adidari, Ling Ling, Lingu by Adidari, Alkutiel, Balkunangurut, Balkutielo, Balkunangurut, Ling Ling, by Sudan, Adidari, Ling Ling, by Sudan, Adidari, Alkutiel, Balkunangurut. Palco by Sudan Adidari, Ling Ling, Lingu by Adidari, Palkutiel, Palkunangurut, Palkutielo, Palkunangurut, Ling Ling, by Sudan Adidari, Ling Ling, by Sudan Adidari, Palkutiel, Palkunangurut, Palkutielo, Palkunangurut, by Panda, by Sudan, by Sudan. Panda Pago, Jalgurunye Chen, Jalgurunye Chen, 
That's Melbourne artist there, Sunny Man, singing in Dinka language. Uh, Dinka is the uh, traditional language of my guest on Out of the Box today. Dor Arkech Achek is from South Sudan. Dor, when you were forced to flee, the vill- to flee your village where you grew up, uh, Ethiopia became the destination. Why Ethiopia? At the time, Ethiopia had the ally with the then rebel leader, John Grang. And when Ethiopia was an option, first up, um, my dad, who went to the army, had visited Ethiopia, and he had uh, some training there, uh, military training, and knew that it was safe for, for us to run to. So, And the big crowd of people um, had already gone there, including the Lost Boys of South Sudan, they had already been in Ethiopia. So we thought, um, okay, where there is safety is where those people have ended up in. So we, we made a conscious run towards that place where there is people. Um, not a couple of months after that, not even um, a month or so, uh, Ethiopia became unstable by, by its own um, government. And the person at the time was Hale uh, Mungisto Meriam who was the president who was aligned to the rebel leader in South Sudan, John Garan. Um, he was um, ousted from power, so he uh, left the country, and from there the refugees who were in the um, Ethiopian camp were kicked out, um, many of whom lost their life along the way. How far was the journey from your village to the camp that you ended up in? Three months. Three months? Three months. Um, in kilometres... How long were you? Tra- how far were you travelling? In in kilometres, it would be about four hundred kilometres, and it's through the thick forest. You would have to deviate, and you would have to walk back, walk across the river. There would be areas in the along the river that you cannot walk. That you have to actually walk another hundred k to find somewhere with no swarm, so that you can cross the river. And who were you with? I was with my mum, my two siblings and uh, my cousins and also other uncles. Do you remember the moment of realisation that you'd have to go back, that you'd have to return that journey? No, the the constant fear was, if I go back, I may die. It it was what was ringing in my head. Um, How, How old were you? I was four. At four years old? Yeah. And you remember having those thoughts as a four year old? I remember very vividly uh, because at every opportunity uh, a four-year-old wouldn't have to run 
to fear or precisely before that it was all about living life and you're happy to you know go in between um, the village and the town and you know all you know is just to live but as soon as you hear gunshots and sounds and you know the rockets start to land next to you you start to have this fear of everything around you that makes a sound um, to this day uh, at time if I have to hear something that sounded like a bullet I'll be very conscious first of all like is there going to be a war here were there moments when you thought that you might not make it? Very much so. Every single moment, especially when um, in those instances where you know that you could hear a bullet um, wheezing alongside you, 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 you kind of think, wow, that could hit me any time. How it is not hitting you, you're just thinking that's just outrageous. And then one, two, there was in, in an instant where we um, had to um, board a, a, a truck, a big truck that carried ammunition. We had just to tag along and jump onto it. But we were pushed off it by other stronger men and, and people that jumped on, on it. Later that night, that truck was um, ambushed and everyone in it died from, from that. And so we thought, had we made it to that truck, we would have probably died as well. Um, and then there was also an incident where an airstrike um, hit the, 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 the rockets from the air shell, hit our compound that we were staying in. We had gone under a bunker, and even some of the people that had um, seek uh, safety under a bunker as well got topped on by um, bombs. And you start to think, okay that could be me as well you know th so every opportunity you, you you see that you're alive you think well there's something that made me to be really here so we we were fortunate and I, I think that's the biggest thing that you can take away from all those near miss near death situation and i guess until i got to australia that was constantly my life Let's play another song, Dor. What should we play now? I want to play a song called Nomar. It means Don't Forget. Um, that's by Sunny Man again. And it's really telling us not to forget all of the things that we've gone through, um, that the war that you're going through is just a test. So let's not forget what you've gone through and let's build our country again. So Nomar. Bye, big When you know Piatede, we are Can you hear the lawyer? And you know, gone mad. And you know, gone mad. And you know, gone mad. I got a road. Carrier band, I bang. Carrier, I got a good Karairo raka genomu Bukde kede Weyati je bukde kede Panda kachi yen wok Nam lao Panda kachi yen wok Jen gadea Kwe jal tinda Jal tinda Kole ben kum wakewetia Jal tinda Kole ben kum wakewetia 
nhận tin đã em chỉ muốn còn mà anh chỉ muốn còn mà để bay anh chỉ muốn còn mà để cả đời rồi anh luôn là bay bên bay anh luôn là đôi bên bay đừng vì anh quên tiêu về tiền chỉ nuốt anh chỉ muốn còn mà để bay anh chỉ muốn còn mà để cả đời rồi ตรงเงียบเว้นเปียวเอเดียลกินลุงยาเลงดาเงงเจวอรมาเงงเจวอรดยองโบกาดิดิเกวอดอนรอรีโบกาโกเกวอดอนรอรีโบกาจอกเก
um, and take a big rock and sit there. How's your class? Your first pen would be your hand. Mm. You'll write on the floor the A, B, C, D, um, your one plus ones. You'll do all of that on the floor. How, how many people are in Kakuma refugee camp? At the moment, there is 100,000 to 150,000. At the time when we arrived, there was about 50,000 people in there. So you come into 50,000 people. Yes. What are they living in? What? 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 Um, so at the time, when if you're the first people that arrive, you would live in tents until you get um, provided materials to go and build your own mud house. So you build your own mud house with thatched grass on on it, and it becomes your your, your home. Um, the toilets are duck latrine, so you dig a hole really deep, could be five, ten meters. You dig it and you put some um, trees over it and sand and leave a hole for it. So that's that's the toilet. Shower is just an open area that you use as a um, a bathroom. Um, the water is um, fetched from a, a water tap that are built by UNHCR and and some other agencies such as the World Food Program. The food that we eat there will supply three kilograms of maize flour or um, maize grain every fortnight. You have um, maybe accompanying it some beans and and at some stage there was there was um, sugar, but that didn't last long. So how how long how long was that for? So uh, three kilograms of maize flour for a fortnight. For a fortnight. Yeah. So three kilograms of food for one fortnight. For one fortnight. Uh, like I ask quite honestly, like how how do you how do you live on that? So what you do is, if I have my three kilograms and my family member three kilogram, we put them together and we ration it, so that one day you missed food, the next day you eat. One day you miss f- food, the next day you eat. So basically, making sure that um, you sustain yourself till the next fortnight. How old are you at this stage? At this stage, six. So six when you arrive. Yeah. So you managed to get some sort of an education. What, what was your teacher like? Who, who were your teachers? So the teachers were people who had dropped out of, you know, whether primary school or secondary school back in um, the camp, and they have um, come into the camp. There could be people from my community that has dropped off school, People from the other refugee communities such as Ethiopia, um, Congo, Eritrea, or any other community groups that have come there. Um, they were um, facilitated by the UNACR. So mainly, most of the people that taught us were people that knew a word of English and they could teach us a word of English. Uh, people that knew maths and they could teach us math. And even some of the kids from um, Kukuma who later on graduated from year eight um, were able to then come back to be teachers within those schools. So really, teachers were from there. It improved as time goes by because um, the, the, the UNHCR was able to afford some of the Kenyan qualified teachers. Usually they become um, teachers of you know, English or Swahili, which no other South Sudanese could teach it because it is a local Kenyan language. What, um, what sort of relationship did you have with the other students in a school like that, if you can call it a school? Yeah, usually 
there are a couple of things that would happen. My first time when I walked into um, a, a class was because I was younger and I was in the same class as my older brother. And so some of these older kids um, looked at me or looked at the classroom and say, we are just going to go and get, uh, we beat someone in class and when we go outside, we'll beat um, someone as well. So I made a conscious choice to only get the beating in outside, but in class, make sure that I beat every student that is in class. So I, I, I just say, okay, I will take the outside beating, um, but inside, I'll do well. Um, however, I couldn't beat my older brother. He was very good, um, and so he usually would go first, I come second. There was only one time in that um, period that I could only pass him. So yeah, um, you would. There was a lot of competition, um, and that competition was because um, when you finish year eight, which is the end of primary school, um, you get a scholarship. The top twenty get a scholarship. Top twenty out of what thousands of kids, um, and so people will compete to get that top twenty. Some moment you could be a bright kid, but at the end of that exam something can happen you could have a meltdown and you won't make that top 20 so you miss out what does the scholarship actually offer so it gives you an access to go into kenyan school where there are proper teachers and proper facilities you know there is a dormitory there is food provided there is um you know learning programs there is lights for you to go and study um so all of those things books things like that so the psychology of that is you are either living in a refugee camp on three kilograms of maize a fortnight um, or you do this test and you basically escape. You escape, but more so was that you get a good education. That was the drive behind it. I mean, I mean the food part of it became a, a normal, a usual thing. So people didn't really care too much about food. And so they, they, they care too much about getting an education. It was the tool that they see will bring them out of the situation that they are in. Were you safe from outside threats when you were in the refugee camp? Yes. So not entirely. The residents there, the um, Turkana people, they're the local resident in, in that area, usually will come and loot. They will come in and, and kill um, people. What motivates them to do that? So really, little things such as food, you know, they want food, they feel privileged um, that, you know, the land is theirs, so why should other people come here and, 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 and stay in their land? Um, things like if, if one person has um, had an issue with them, they see it has a whole refugee issue, so they will then attack refugees for that matter. And at the time when we left, the, the, the camp was under attack. Um, so it was fortunate as well because myself, I had chronic malaria, typhoid, and yellow fever all at once. I would go into my class in the morning. About 11 o'clock, when the sun comes up, I would heat up, high fever, I would shut down. So I would leave, I would camp from tree to tree until I get to my residence and lie there till the very next day. I would eat nothing at all. I would just drink water. And so the camp was under attack. The bandits has come, the Turkana bandit, 
they had come, they were shooting. I was lying there. My mom has gone to Nairobi to follow the process for us coming here, the visa process. And I was there thinking that that's the end of it. If they come now, I won't be able to get up and move and run. And so fortunately, my auntie had to come from another area, about another 20K walk to come in and take me. She took me into a hiding in a, um, a UNHCR compound. It was squishy, so they kind of kicked everyone out. We took a hiding at a, an Ethiopian um, shop. I lied there on the floor. The very next day, my friend came to me and said, your names are on the board, you're going to Australia. And I was like, you're kidding me. Are you trying to get me to get up, motivate me? And he's like, no, 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 I'm serious, your names are there. I actually did get up and went to ran to the board to confirm that my family names were on the board and we're coming to Australia. That was the luck. So from surviving, having to be picked up by my auntie, hearing gunshots around in the camp, to then someone saying, no, you're going to escape this, you're going to go to Australia. It was a moment of realisation that I, I've had my second salvation, actually. Some more music now, Dor. What should we play? Now we'll play I Believe I Can Fly um, by R. Kelly. The reason I want to do this is one of the nights in Kakuma Refugee Camp, we used to listen to a Kenyan national radio. Between 8.30 and 9.30, they would play music. And they would choose one song and read out the lyrics to you over the radio. So one evening that the, the song play, I believe I can play. And they read out the lyrics to it. That captures the moment that I say, okay, I think there's something that I, I need to be aware of. And that is that every moment that I've gone through in life is a testament to the fact that I can, by one day, I can do anything. And so this is a, a recollection of that memory that night in the refugee camp. I believe I can fly. Okay. I can fly 
That's R. Kelly. It's early 2000s pop, and it comes from my guest on Out of the Box today, Dor Akech Achek. He first encountered it during his nine years at Kakuma Refugee Camp in Kenya. Uh, he's now the settlement manager, manager at Settlement Services International. Dor, had you heard of Australia before you were told that you were going to move here? Yeah, um, it was in 2000 Olympics, um, and as a crazy soccer fan, um, we would duck out of school and check out the scores, and usually you would watch highlights from a local video store. 
we didn't have money, so we didn't go inside the video store. So we would poke holes on the, the store. It was made of mud. We we'll put our eyes in there. Through that TV screen was this beautiful stadium, beautiful showcase of Australia. This thing floating on water. Turns out it was Opera House. Um, and we were like, wow, where is, where is this place? Where is this heaven on earth? People were like, this is Sydney, Australia. Um, so we were kind of amazed by the beauty of the country and the, the structures that are in, in that compared to Kakuma Refugee Camp, such um, houses made of mud, you know, dusty. You couldn't compare it to anything. You end up uh, landing not in Sydney but Toowoomba. Was it uh, different from the expectations? No, it wasn't. It was still. We landed in Sydney first at the airport, and it was, wow. I had my first McDonald's meals at Sydney Airport. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then 9 o'clock, that's when we um, arrived in Brisbane and um, were transported via van at the time. Were you but still very sick? I was still very sick. I, was, I still had typhoid. I had really lost a lot of weight. It really was terrible time it coincided as well with my adolescent years so I was 15 at the time um, actually turning 15 and so I was variously very you know sick and weak and you know um, but when I looked out through the the van that was transporting us to Toowoomba I saw these hills these lights things were really different you know you're traveling on tarmac road, you know, you arrive to these um, red tiled roofs, um, you know, buildings, you're located in a motel, it feels like you're you're sitting in a five star hotel. It was a different feelings um, altogether. So it, it stayed. And then through that, we, we kind of thought, okay, wipe that off your head, you're here, you're settled, you need now to get an education that was the motivation for us to moving back to Sydney because we asked a local um, neighbor who said oh okay you want an education through Jesuit refugee services okay um, the only place that you can p find Jesuit refugee services Sydney so you might as well just check them out and we checked them out but also was to find um, place where we have relatives that would support us as well so it we made that conscious move to come back to Sydney um, to look for that education so where did you settle in Sydney Auburn was my first home and how much of a community did you have there a lot and first time when I arrived to Auburn I we uh, were located next to our former um, pastor um, priest and Myself, being a person who have high connection with spiritual stuff, um, holding my faith, I engaged with that priest, and and he said, "Okay, what what do you have in mind?" I said, "Okay, we need to open a South Sudanese service at a local church." So we approached a church in um, Barala, and we talked to that person, the the the, the pastor in charge. I was like, "Welcome, my brothers. Welcome." He was a great man. We start a service there, first South Sudanese service um, in, in a, an Anglican church in Barala. 
I used to do um, Sunday school teaching, you know, prepare all the service stuff, and you know, until I went to school. And when I went to school, that's when I left um, the church. Um, and people moved from that church to another area, which which was fine. It continued that. So the school that you end up going to is uh, is Riverview on Sydney's North Shore, which if anyone has ever been to, I mean, you really could not get a more stark contrast to a 50,000-person refugee camp and, uh, and uh, you know, a, a, ma- a massive complex on Sydney's North Shore. Yeah. What, what was it like settling in? Yeah, so Riverview is a, such a lovely community of uh, uh, people who have gone through different aspects in life. Um, even that didn't um, show when I was there. So the first three months, I was a, a kid that won an education, down to earth with my schoolwork. I'm performing good. Three months down the track, I became aware of my surrounding, the engagement that I received at a lunchtime school yard in the park going to play in the dormitory what sort of engagement so people are asking me so where are you from and then i say i'm from south sudan and they're like what where is that and do they live in huts Uh, do you you know stay in homes is it all these sort of ideals that do not add up and then people start to talk to you as if you're an australian so they swear of you and for me and as an african kid Swearing at me is like declaring fight. So I would be like, oh, is, is a fight about to happen now? <laughs> I'll kind of duck down and say, oh, that person swore at me. Um, and also things that include teachers wanting or preferring my athletic abilities than my academic capabilities. And so they will say, okay, um, in, ol- in 2000 Olympics, we hosted Kenyan Olympics. They were good at running and that's what the, some of the teachers saw in me, good at sport. And so those things I was kind of pushing back. And then there's also the, the, the schoolyard drama where as a black kid, the only thing that people see in you is gangster. They throw you signs. The latest music, you're meant to know it. Anything that you're supposed to dress like one. Where's your heart? Where's your this? Rings, things like that. Mm. I came crashing down because that wasn't the expectation that I had for myself. Until one day, a physics teacher, thank God to him, he came to me and said, let's compare your last three months or your first three months in the school with your current performances. There's a greater difference. Why is that? I want to know. Help me understand. I thought you were going to be able to challenge um, my best students here. What's happening? I opened up to him. I talked to him about all the different things that I was facing, and he's like, okay, what we'll do, we will allocate a person for you, like a tutor that will come to you uh, after school to support you and go through revision of what you learn in class. That was how I began to, to, to pick up my performances. Also, I went to my... Um, school principal and we said look this school know nothing about me it can become very difficult sometimes so the school decide okay we'll put on an assembly 1500 kids and you will get to tell your story so that people learn 
what your story is. What happened during that assembly? Very responsive people. Some people shed tears, cried. Some people were blank in the face. A lot came to us later on and say, you've gone through a lot. And I said, look, it, it's not the pity that I am looking for. It's to open your mind to other perspectives, other people that may be around you. And so it was really a powerful thing to do. From that moment on, the school engaged in other um, cultural exchange program where they bring in schools from the West to play basketball and then go and visit mosque in, in those schools, kind of like a intermingling that was, that, that, that was spurred on by that um, action. What song can we play now, Dor? So now we'll play Yori Yori by Bracket, it's a Nigerian um, artist. The reason I want to play this is because this was a song, once I completed my education, it was a song that emerged at the time. And when I traveled back for the very, very first time to see my father, this was a song that was um, popular and I listened to it. And I even um, got my wife before we got married um, to save it as her ringtone. And that's every time I, I, I called her, it was the ringtone that I hear. Yori Yori by Bracket. Of you, I they fly like butterfly, my love. No, love. Now this thing make people they say, say I don't lose my six, my pain. But nobody can stop me from loving you. I'm with you, my love, lover. With you, everything is well, well in your love. They make my heart to do yori yori. Nobody can love you the way I do. I'm with you, my love, lover. With you, everything is well, well in your love. They make my heart to do yori yori. Nobody can love you the way I do. I'm with you. My love, you see the way all the things they flow. So I'm surprised to see how they love you so. Girl, I the suspect say them no, no. Say that you be the person where they make me flow. Ooh, I tell them say you are the blessing, and that's why you are so interesting. Nobody is understanding you way you are. Oh my beautiful girl, now all these make people they say I don't lose my face, my pain, but they can't stop me from loving you. I'm with you, my love, love. They affect my brain until you they make me go insane. It go make sense if you come my place. If you know here I'm, I go talk and again. Your love will they affect my brain. Oh my love, I they go insane. Just leave them the way he be, the way he is. 
say I don't lose my six, my brain, but they can't stop me from loving you. I'm waiting, my lover, lover. There is uh, Yori Yori by Nigerian artist Bracket. It's brought into FBI Radio and out of the box today by my guest, Dor Akech Achek. He is the settlement manager at Settlement Services International. Dor, what actually is Settlement Services International? What is your job now? Yeah. So my job is a settlement services manager. So I manage the settlement services program at SSI. The program involves a community hubs program which support women that have arrived to this country and also the earlier um, education programs for um, nearly arrived um, children to prepare them and get them ready for school. It um, involves supporting people, runs in schools, selective schools that we, we go into, about 19 schools. The program also has the other main component as well which is the Settlement and Engagement and Transition Support Program. This program is delivered by migrant resource centres and um, nine other uh, specific community organisations that are part of the New South Wales Settlement Partnership. The program supports people who have arrived to Australia in the last five years to um, connect them to the community, support them with um, uh, facilitating education, employment, and also English learning. Uh, it's also support them with social um, support programs, recreational activities, and generally advocacy support. Australia's um, political culture at the moment, it feels like uh, perhaps it's been more hostile to refugees than it has been in the last few decades. Um, it's something that I hear um, talked about a lot in progressive circles, um, particularly around the inner city. It's a like a hot button issue. I'm wondering if if you as a refugee, do you, do you think about politics a lot? Or do you think about Australian politics a lot? I do. I do think about Australian politics a lot. And this is a personal uh, opinion. It's not an opinion related to my work. Um, I do think about politics and to the degree that it had an impact on each and every person settling here. reason why I say that is, if you look at in the media recently, you would see comments made by Assistant Minister for Home Affairs, um, Jason Wood, about the African gang and the comments that he made during, um, you know, before the campaign period, you know, and those comments were quite damaging 
um, to a person of African background. For example, if I was to apply for a job, the fact that I am an African will form an opinion for an employer to think that, okay, these are the sort of group of people that, you know, cause trouble in the Australian community. That's one. Two, I have a brother at the moment, my stepbrother, who is in a detention center um, here in Villawood, facing deportation, whose visa was canceled. Came on the same humanitarian visa and now is being um, uh, deported just because he hadn't had a proper support like myself and hadn't made it that he's now going to be deported. So I think about those, those decisions were made, you know, by politicians, by people who, who, who sits in, in the parliament house to legislate on laws. And so I think about it. It has an impact on my family. It has an impact on me. It has an impact on my community as well. And not only just my community in terms of the African community, but my community in terms of the migrant that has arrived to this country, in terms of my local community that I lived in out west, in terms of people that I interact with every day in my work. So it has an adverse impact. It is captive to people. And so I would uh, I say I think about it every day and every night, and even to the point where I fear if we are going to become another USA, you know, where if I walk down, my interaction with the police would be informed by the views of other people, all the things that they see um, in the media, and so it will be troublesome. As much as I'm not um, in trouble with the law or anything, I would hate to be near a police because I'm thinking in my head, constantly thinking, what is going to happen to me? I know Australia is a positive community. It's a very good country. But there is that feeling as well that you have when we deal with minority groups. With that, uh, i got to ask what we used to play out this episode of Out of the Box Door. Yes. Um, finally, I want to um, close it off with a, a song that is going to share with you what my feelings are spiritually. And so I, I, I believe that as an artist who like composing song, cultural songs, be they, as well as religious song and spiritual song, I want to close up with a gospel song. And that gospel song is a song that I composed and handed over to our um, church to go and, um, and, you know, edit it and, and record it. So that gospel song will be the last to play here. And thanks for listening. And on that, I'd like to say thank you so much to my producers, Bree Jones and Nicole DePalo and Dor. Thank you so much for sharing your story with uh, with me today. Thank you. Thank you very much, Joey.
This podcast is produced by FBI Radio in Sydney. Find more at fbiradio.com slash podcasts.